Well, I thank you guys for the, uh, the opportunity to come and preach to you today. I know most of you didn't have a choice or a say in the matter. Um, your pastor just kind of set you up for it. And your session went along with it. So that's probably malpractice. Um, but it is great to be here. Uh, the, the warm... Uh, time that I remember from when the, the seven years or so that my parents were here uh, still still is in my mind as just a very uh, good, warm, welcoming time. And every time that I showed up, it was it was like meeting old friends and family again uh, to a far greater extent than our actual experience together should have warranted. So it is, it is good to be back here, and it is kind of like being back home when we happen to just pop in uh, like we did uh, one Wednesday night, I think in July it was. Uh, it was just such a, such a great thing to, to hop in and immediately be uh, with family because you're among the family of God. Today I'll be preaching to you from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 9. Before we uh, go to the word, let's pray that God will add his blessing to it. Oh Lord God, our Heavenly Father, Jesus the Son and Holy Spirit, our triune deity that we worship, not a far-off austere being that we do not know, but one who has revealed himself personally to us. One who saw the plight that we are in as fallen creatures, hopelessly lost, and did that which we could not have imagined, that you would become a man so that you could experience death on our behalf. Live perfectly. And give us your life, life eternal. God, I pray that you would continue to revive and awaken us to that new life. And perhaps even some for the first time. God, what we ask for is a miracle every Sunday when we gather together that the fellowship that was broken in the garden when we said, no, Lord, we will go our own way. We will be our own God. Could somehow be reconciled. We see this in the the tabernacle. How the angels with swords crossed are weaved into the curtain separating the people from the holy place. Just as this, the angel with a flaming sword was placed at the entrance of the garden, signifying that the fellowship between man and God, this face to face fellowship that we were created for, is simply not possible in our current sinful condition because man cannot see God and live.
but you have done something so great and that you sent your son, Jesus Christ. Taking everything human to yourself that you might experience everything that we experience so that you might be the great high priest. When you were nailed to the cross and you gave up your spirit, that curtain that separated us from fellowship with God was torn in two. That giant curtain in the temple that only the high priest would go through and only once a year was rent from top to bottom. So God, we come here this morning to meet with you. We pray that you would meet with us and that your spirit would continue to change us. We come into a relationship with you by faith and we continue by faith. We pray that our, our bodies, our souls would be sanctified as we behold your face this day. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and labor? Your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I make him a witness to the peoples a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because the Lord your God, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is the word of the Lord. The ministry of the prophet Isaiah began in a time of great prosperity for both the northern and southern kingdoms. But as so often happens with prosperity, it spoils and ruins those who inherit it. As one commentator wrote, the outward splendor contained within itself the fatal germ of decay and ruin in one case as much as the other. For prosperity degenerated into luxury and the worship of Jehovah became stiffened into idolatry. The loving elector of Israel had become a good luck charm to Judah and had been utterly abandoned by Israel. Despite the warning and patience of God, they would eventually 
not recover from their apostasy and both would be sent into exile. Despite a good few leaders, some kings, some priests, who tried to bring about reformation and revival, the bulk of the people were never converted and the hearts of them and the hearts of their children remained far from God. So remember Isaiah was called in chapter 6 and he was given a particular sort of call. It wasn't particularly encouraging. It's probably not what any pastor would want to hear from God where God to tell him what his ministry was going to be like. It was, go and tell these people, give these people my judgment. Tell them what they've done wrong over and over again. Tell them to repent. And they're going to refuse to. But you're just going to keep on telling them. So as he prophesied, hearts did not soften, they got harder. Ears did not open, they did not become more receptive, they closed. But in the midst of all these declarations, we see so much in this book of Isaiah's prophecies that looks to a salvation that these people would never personally see come about. And yet some of them were partakers of. Christ is shown forth in a glory that could not be comprehended by Isaiah or the people he was preaching to. Isaiah prophesied of a salvation that was yet to be revealed and something which angels longed to look into. God's redemption not only of ethnic Israel but of his elect from the entire world. Isaiah has been noted in the church age as to be less of a prophet than an evangelist because he seemed to understand the gospel in ways that we even have a hard time comprehending today, certainly much less back then. As things are heading from bad to worse in the north and the south, Isaiah continued to prophesy of both God's justice, his wrath against our sin, and the way which he would come and save us. In verses 8 and 9, we have a text about the nature of God's thoughts and God's ways. And that is where I want to start and then work back from. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. These well-known verses are often used to comfort people in a time of affliction, often when we have lost a loved one, or when things are just not going as we plan, when all of our plans and our dreams seem frustrated at every corner, we are told, well, God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We don't know what he's up to. There's, there's so much more behind this. There's so much more down the road that we don't understand. But don't worry. When you get past all of this, you'll look back and you'll see things from the aerial view, from God's perspective, and you'll say that he's done all things well. So take comfort. Now, that's, that's absolutely true. And I don't want to dissuade anyone from that opinion and that truth. But that's actually not the primary meaning of the verse. The primary meaning of the verse in its context is that God is going to save and do so in an utterly alien and radical way that we would have never come up with ourselves. This text is about forgiveness and how God's going to bring it about. God's salvation is higher than our thoughts and ways. We would have never guessed them. 
And so you see in history and throughout the world today that the Christian doctrine of salvation is utterly unique in the world. Every civilization has produced a religion, has produced a pathway to God because they know that there is something incredibly broken about the world. There's something incredibly broken about ourselves. We see this in our relationships. We see that in nature. It's very obvious. And generally they come up with the exact same prescription and it's a prescription for the wrong problem. Christianity gives us something incredibly unique. Romans chapter 1 tells us that God's eternal power and divine nature have always been known by all people everywhere because of creation itself. Psalm 19.1 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Everyone knows by nature that because anything exists, that because something exists, God exists. And they also have the law of God written on their hearts. They know that there's a God and they know right and wrong. And therefore they know that they are guilty of sin. Some don't call it sin, but they at least can't help but noticing that there is so much in the world that is not as it should be. Things break, people lie, our loved ones perish. We too will one day die. Therefore religions have sprung up all around the world with one task in mind to fix the human race but when they come up with it on their own apart from the direct revelation of God telling us how we need to be doing things they come up with some pretty interesting things meditation, good advice, penance pilgrimages, sabbaticals, head shrinking self mutilation, self evaluation, rituals cleansing, Xanax Ritual prostitution, pornography, ritual sacrifice, and ritual human sacrifice. All in an attempt to fix ourselves. There is literally no limit to which man will go to in an attempt to either appease God or ignore him and self-medicate. So in our attempts as fallen man to right ourselves to our creator, we have constructed a million and one towers of Babel trying to establish a name for ourselves that we would not be scattered that we could achieve some sort of transcendence, some sort of eternality that we know is missing and needs to be restored. And also these, these religions all teach morality. And most of it's basically the same. It's generally not much different from the last six of the Ten Commandments, those which deal basically with how we are to uh, address other human beings. That's probably because the most obvious way we see the fall is in our broken relationships. They see that we constantly fail to live up to these rules and therefore assume that what we need is to be taught the rules again or perhaps in a better way. If we perhaps add a few more rules or describe them in greater detail, present them in a better way by a better teacher, then we'll start doing the right thing and the world will be great again. Of course, some people won't want to join your club, they won't like your teacher, and they won't want to follow your rules, but there's an easy way to fix that. You just kill all them, okay? And then the world will be a great place because you'll have gotten rid of all those people, right? We see that in the world today. If we listen to these religions, we're basically being told one thing over and over and over again. If you look 
to the religions of the world, if you look to the perversions of the Old Testament religion, and even the perversions of the New Testament religion, you see one thing being told to you. Try harder and do better, and then maybe God will accept you and like you. They use sticks and carrots, and they try to modify people's behavior. And in the end, that's the only thing that they can possibly hope to do, is modify the behavior because the heart remains corrupted. There is only one religion that tells man to stop climbing Jesus did not say that you must be better. He said that you must be born again. You are not merely ignorant. You are not a little broken. You are dead in your sins. You don't need another teacher. You need a savior. We all need to be raised to new life. All other religions give man advice on how he may improve himself. Christ alone tells us that what we need is an entirely new self. God himself became a man and died that we might be accounted righteous, Isaiah 53, 11. That is the gospel. It is not good advice. It is good news. When God declares to Isaiah that his ways and thoughts are higher than ours, he means that his way of dealing with us and with our sin is completely alien to anything we would have come up with on our own. We would have never imagined it had we been given all of eternity to sit and think of a way. The prophets and certainly Isaiah spent their entire lives plumbing the depths of what this meant. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11 says of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of times the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. You see, the prophets and the the patriarchs, they looked forward to something. They understood that salvation was by faith. But they didn't understand how that was going to happen. There was much which they didn't know. And it boggled their minds. We live in such a rich time to know these things. It was things that even angels, Peter says, longed to look into. God's plan of salvation looks nothing like anything the world offers. It is not self-help. It is not self-righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness and it is offered freely to everyone who will come with empty hands and cling to the old rugged cross. So I'd like to bring to you three implications of this text. Number one, because God's ways and thoughts are not our ways and thoughts, divine revelation, the Bible, which we have, is essential to worshiping God and to salvation. I'll restate that in a little bit different way. God's ways and thoughts, very different than ours, and therefore if God hadn't come down and told us himself exactly what the problem and the solution were and how we'd respond to him in worship, we would screw up all of that. In fact, we do screw up all of that. We know enough on our own simply to condemn ourselves, don't we? But it takes something extra. It takes the revelation that God has come and that he calls you to repentance and faith, to stop striving on your own, to give up trying to appease God and to simply surrender to him. Romans 2, 14 and 15 says that when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written on their hearts. The Gentiles cannot claim innocence because the law of God is written on their hearts. 
Now, of course, there's all this is a great protest. What about the innocent native in Africa or in South America who's never heard about Jesus? Certainly God would not judge them. Well, there's a huge problem with that. There are no innocent natives in Africa, and there are no innocent natives in South America or anywhere else. All have the law of God written on their hearts. They know enough to know what they should be doing. They know enough to know that God is and that he demands righteousness and that to do anything else is treasonous and sinful. Yet we do. So if God simply gave people a get-out-of-hell-free card based on ignorance, the best thing we could do is to shut up, never talk about Jesus again, not gather as a church and hope that nobody hears anything. But clearly that does not square with logic or reason. All are guilty and no one is truly ignorant of the law. So while we know enough to be condemned without the Bible, we don't know enough to be saved without the Bible. The revelation of God to man is absolutely essential for man to be saved because God's ways are wholly different than our ways. When men seek redemption and don't have the Bible, things get weird. They figure that God is like them, only bigger, and therefore they think that they have to pay God off. So pretty soon they're doing some really crazy things, like sacrificing their children, trying to pay God off. If you study ancient Canaanite religion, uh, you will find that the worst things about that, that region, those people, were their methods of trying to draw near to God, trying to worship God. And in, in, in fact, if, if, you, if you go and study it, like I've been doing a little bit in seminary recently, you will suddenly have less and less problem with God's command to wipe them out because it was absolutely horrible. And this was man trying to worship God apart from God's revelation to man. So the new thing is materialism. Pretend God's not there, that this matter stuff is all that is there. If you just ignore God, pretend he's not there, put all your hope in this life and let nothing get in between you and the enjoyment of all of these material things, then you'll be happy and at least you'll have made the best of the here and now. And go figure, pretty soon we're doing the same thing, sacrificing children on the altar of convenience and success and prosperity, assuring that nothing gets in between us and our happiness. God's word, that is God speaking to us, revealing his will directly to us in scripture is utterly necessary for worship and it is necessary for salvation. The law shows shows us our sin, but it is the gospel revealed to us in the personal work of Jesus Christ and now through the Bible that brings us to salvation. Without God sending it, we would have never found our way to God. We would never know how bad off we are And we would never know how forgiving God is. We would be endlessly chasing dead ends. So that's number one. Because God's ways and thoughts are not our ways and thoughts. The Bible is essential for worshiping God and it is especially essential for salvation. Number two. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is utterly different and weird and nonsensical to the natural man and to the world. There's a well-known atheist and television personality named Bill Maher. You may have known of, may have known of him. And once he was uh, 
interviewing the pastor. I think it was maybe a, one of the large Baptist churches in, in Washington, D.C. And the pastor brought up that we believe that salvation is by faith alone, by grace, through faith. And Bill Moore said, ah, that's exactly what drives me nuts about you guys. That's how he says it too. I mean, you take the one good thing from religion and you take it out of there. Which is, of course, moral teaching, stick and carrot. What he's saying there is he doesn't believe, not only does he not believe in God, he doesn't believe in the power of God, but religious people, we do the same thing, don't we? We believe in God, we believe the gospel, but then we fail to believe in the power of God because we don't want to give people the free grace through Christ that he's offered. Instead, we tell them, okay, get saved by faith, and now earn your keep. We spend all of our time beating them over the head with the law, trying to get them to act like Christians. We don't believe in the power of God to transform them. And religious people, falsely religious people, I don't want to impugn religion. I don't think the Bible ever really does. Falsely religious people really hate this whole idea of salvation by faith. And certainly sanctification by faith because it doesn't give them the opportunity to distinguish themselves as better than everyone else. In Matthew 6 and Luke 8, we see this sort of thing. They thrive on the praise of others. They think they're better than others. They don't really believe in God. They don't believe God. They certainly don't love God and they don't believe in the power of God. 2 Timothy 3, verse 4 and 5 says that they are all lovers of self rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness but denying the power thereof. Almost every heresy in the church has this element They deny salvation by faith apart from works, partly because they don't believe in the transforming power of God. And they often deny Christ's deity and thus his ability to justify a multitude of sinners once for all by his death. Because they continue to leave the ultimate impetus for salvation and righteousness within the corrupt heart of man instead of the sovereign work of God. They don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to regenerate a sinner's soul and sanctify them by the truth of God. No matter how bad they were. And this plays right into reason one. The worst of sinners can be the greatest of saints and pedigree counts for absolutely nothing. It doesn't matter how bad you were before and it doesn't matter how good you were before. Some of you guys remember my, my family, my parents. I came from some pretty good folks. Guess what? still a turd burglar I'm still a dirt bag you don't want to be like me you want to be like Christ really more than being like Christ you just want to be in Christ and our sanctification that is our becoming more like Christ our getting a little bit better it's a work of God's free grace in the heart as well and Jesus gets all the glory. Religious hypocrites and atheists alike don't like it because they're the sons of the devil and they want the glory. They don't want to worship God. They want to be God. And so when the glory is taken away from them because all of this is of Christ and all of this is of grace, it turns them off. The ones in our day, in my opinion, parade themselves as paradigms of virtue and tolerance. They are the good people. They are the accepting ones. 
They preach acceptance and not grace because if they were to preach grace, they would have to preach sin and they would have to admit that they are the sinners themselves. Instead, they are not the sinners. They are just the good people who are accepting. History doesn't repeat it. Was it Mark Twain? I said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And so we're constantly looking for the Pharisee of Jesus' day. And we want to point to them and say, there's the evil Pharisee, because we always want to point to them instead of us. But they don't look the same. So here's the opportunity for you. I'm giving you a them to point at. Um, it just doesn't look like the them of yesterday. So this is the reaction you'll get to grace. If you actually expound grace properly, not only will you get ambivalence, not only will you get, yeah, I did that when I was seven. I already got my Jesus. I don't need to go to church. You'll also get anger. You'll get some really harsh responses from grace because grace brings with it an implied indictment. So that's number two. Grace is utter nonsense to this world and often makes people mad. Last implication, number three. If you abandon absolutely everything and make savoring Christ your greatest pleasure, he will make you abundantly joyful and thus he will make you an effective witness. Verses 1 through 7 told us in its very poetic way how to be saved, expressing this thought through similar phrases repeated, all saying basically the same thing but a little bit different because all metaphors break down, right? But if you string four of them together, you can get a pretty full picture of what's going on, and that's what he did. He says, come and take, come and eat, come and drink, hear and live. And these four statements all mean the same thing. They mean come and partake in Christ. Be unified to Christ. Delight your soul in Christ. It says that whether you're 9 years old or 90 years old, devote your life to tasting and seeing that God is good and you will be satisfied. There's just one qualifier. You have to come to him empty-handed. It's not optional. It's, it's, it's utterly demanded from the text. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. Now this... These, these two uh, descriptions here, the wicked and the unrighteous. You know who that is? That's all y'all. That's me, that's you, that's us. And this means when he says, let him forsake his way and his thoughts, that means utterly abandoning your entire self. Your ways, your actions, and your thoughts are the things you think. Please tell me what's left of you when you get rid of those. Nothing. Zilch. Nada. And that's how we must come to Christ. We must come empty-handed. Nothing in my hands I bring, and simply to the cross I cling. So come, buy, eat, drink, and hear, and don't bring a dime to pay for it, because your money is no good. If you think it is... You've once again misdiagnosed the problem. Isaiah in chapter 64 verse 6 tells us that all our righteousnesses, that is anything that we think is good about ourselves, any action that we think is good that comes from us, are like filthy rags. 
You cannot pay God off with filthy rags. Yes, we can do good things. I helped the neighbor. Was that a good work? Absolutely. But you know what? You didn't do it with a pure heart. And so if my wife is at the dinner table and one of the kids causes a catastrophe again and she says, Keith, give me a towel. And I run outside and I grab the towel that I used on the car and the kids left in the yard and the dirt and I go grab it and I toss it at her. I didn't really help her. These are our works when given to God. They're filthy. They're polluted. Yeah, it's a work. It was still a towel. You just asked me for a towel, honey. I gave you a towel. Didn't want that one. Well, every one of our works are that towel. You cannot pay God off. If you think your, your, your salvation requires some work or payment on your part, you have utterly dis- misdiagnosed the problem. Let me make it clear. Let me make sure you understand the problem. You are the problem. I am the problem. You are a traitor. You are the enemy, guilty of cosmic treason against your creator. But Christ, if you are one of his sheep, gave himself in exchange for you, taking God's wrath in your stead and taking you back. That's the definition of redemption. And he did it for his people. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. The solution is not for you to get better, but for God to become a man and die in your stead. So God says, come and buy, eat, drink, and hear me. If you don't leave yourself and let go of everything that is you, you can't do that. You cannot get all of the grace you need with your hands full because you need it on your hands too. All of you needs all of Christ. Repentance is coming with empty hands. And trusting in Jesus, throwing yourself on his mercy. Come, buy, eat, and drink Jesus. Hear Jesus. In him all the promises of God are yes and amen. When you understand these things and you walk daily with the Lord, eating this free food, drinking this free wine and milk, hearing these words from the mouth of God, you will want to tell other destitute beggars where to find food. If you abandon absolutely everything and make savoring Christ your greatest pleasure, he will make you joyfully abundant. And he will make you an effective witness. Because that which you love, that which you like, that which gives you that spark in life, you'll continue to talk about. Anybody watch a football game over the last few days? Have you said something about it since? You like college football, pro football? You'll talk about it at work. And if you love Jesus and you understand your salvation, you will speak about it and it will flow from you outside the walls of this church. It will overflow into the other avenues of your life. And when it's real... Be encouraged by this. It's often, the genuineness of your faith is often sometimes more evident to the world than you think it is. Because you see the worst of you, and that's okay. Keep thinking that. But sometimes God even uses us 
and the places where we've contacted the gospel to save others. So here's the recap of those things, and I'll be just about done. Because God's ways and thoughts are not our ways, we've got to have God's revelation in order to worship him and to be saved by him. The grace, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, makes absolutely no sense to the world. And sometimes it actually makes them mad. And thirdly, if you abandon absolutely everything and make Jesus Christ your meat and your drink, your greatest pleasure, he will make you abundantly joyful and make you an effective witness. So three points of application that are the fastest three points of application you've ever heard in your life. If you've been trying to bring your own works to God and pay them off, scoring religious brownie points, repent and believe the gospel. That's not the gospel. And if you believe, too, if you believe that you are saved by grace in order to pay God back so that you can become one of the really good Christians that we all aspire to be, that's not the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. And third, if Christ is not the singular point of ultimate meaning and joy in your life, You are either unsaved or saved but distracted. In either way, the solution is the same. Repent and believe the gospel. Today is the day of salvation. If there's breath in your lungs, then there is hope that no matter where you've been, what you've done or who you've done it to, that you may be saved. Wherever you are now, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let us pray. Holy Father, I pray that we would now take these words to heart that we would believe your message, that we would believe in your power. That we would give up our own efforts. So many of us have come to salvation by faith, only to fall off the horse again onto the work side. Spiritual ruts, guilt, guilt that keeps us away from you. But God, let us see that our life is to be one of repentance and faith from start to last. Let us depend wholly on you. Let us give you all the glory. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.